everyone, and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. And my name is Catherine McKay. Today, I'm joined by Amy Harbin and Michael Doan uh, from Oakland University in Michigan. And today we're discussing their paper, which is entitled Public Health and Precarity, which appears in volume 13, number two of IJFAB, our most recent issue. Um, and it's in the special issue on the work of Sue Sherwin. Um, hi, Michael. Hi, Amy. Hello. Hi, Kate. <laughs> How are you? We're good. We're Thank you for thanks. having us. Oh, no problem. Um, thanks so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed reading this paper. I thought this was a really cool um, way of thinking through public health from the relational perspective. So I wondered if you could start us off with an elevator pitch of your paper for the listeners. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kate. Um, <clears throat> I guess the main question we're starting on from is a question that has been on a lot of people's minds recently. Um, but it's worth mentioning just to start that we that we did write this paper long before the onset of the of the COVID pandemic, because mm-hmm. um, we wrote it partly to honor the work of our of our supervisor um, Sue Sherwin. But anyway, the main question that we're starting from is who should be responsible for protecting and promoting public health? And since this question suggests that agents could be singled out as responsible apart from their relations with many other agents. One of the things that we want to emphasize, it might actually not be the best question to start with when we're thinking about responsibility for public health. Instead, we recommend starting with the questions of who's actually involved, whose relationships would need to shift in what ways, and who would need to do what and for whom in order to accomplish specific health-related goals. We also note that the question of who should be responsible for public health uh, it has encouraged a lot of philosophers to defend some worris- worrisomely simplistic and even potentially harmful positions, arguing either that the state alone or the state plus select non-state actors ought to be responsible for public health. We call these the state-centered and mixed approaches to public health, respectively. We draw in two case studies of public health ethic- efforts in precarious communities to argue for the need to attend more carefully to the role of the state in creating and maintaining public health crises, um, as well as to the inherent limitations of state-driven public health programs and to an array of factors that contribute to reproducing those limitations over time. Drawing several lessons from those case studies, we argue for a thoroughly relational approach to understanding responsibilities for public health. and just emphasize that certain agents may need to be reconstituted in and through shifting relations with others not only because they could be contributing more or differently to public health efforts, but also because they would need to be constituted otherwise to cease neglecting or actively compromising the health of specific populations. Um, So in some, I mean, basically what the paper is saying is that in order to talk about responsibility for public health, we need to talk about changing institutions and relationships over time. Uh, So it's really not just an ethical issue, the question of responsibility for public health, but a thoroughly political one. Yeah. So I guess some of the motivations behind writing this, as you've just said, Michael, were to honor the work of Sue Sherwin. But I'm also wondering if some of this kind of, did this come to you through observing things like what happened in um, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which is one of your case studies in the paper, kind of observing things in the world as well? 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the the sort of most direct impetus was that, as as Mike said, we're both doctoral students of Sue Sherwin mm -hmm. at Dalhousie University, and we're huge admirers of her and her work. And so, when there was a conference being organized there, and we were um, we were just keen to submit because we love Sue, and we are keen to mm -hmm. to honor her work in whatever way we can. But beyond that, we're also both interested in public health ethics and bioethics more broadly from a sort of number of directions. So Mike has written before um, both alone and with Sue Sherwin about um, the relations between climate, climate change and public health ethics. Um, and we've both together actually written pieces um, responding to the public health crises of the Detroit water shutoffs where we live in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and then also connecting the Detroit water shutoffs and the Flint water crisis, which more people are familiar with. So, um, so we've, we've, we have our sort of own interests in public health ethics that we've brought to that. And so, yeah, in part, we're, we're interested in connecting activist and organizing work with work in feminist bioethics and especially with the relational theory of Sue Sherwin mm -hmm. um, to try to see how they can inform each other, right? What can we learn from Sue's work for, and other feminist bioethicists work for thinking about organizing and what can we learn from organizing for thinking about bioethics? Um, so yeah, I think that those were the main motivations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then I wonder if you could give a bit of a, an overview of sort of the main ways in which you think that um, Sue Sherwin's work in relational autonomy, but maybe just sort of relationality even more broadly understood can impact our understanding of public health and public health ethics. Oh, well, wow, there's so many different ways. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of, um, you know, going back to the paper, there, there's, a, there's a lot of different sort of points that we try to make of connection there. Mm -hmm. I think what we were trying to do in the paper more broadly is to kind of um, enter into um, approaches or a debate in mainstream and in feminist bioethics about understanding the roles and responsibilities of state agents in, in public health. And when we sort of entered that debate there, we, in the paper, we sort of start with situating it um, as a lot of mainstream bioethics focusing on state-centered approaches to um, understanding the, the role of the state in, in public health. And you've kind of talked about this already, but really understanding, you know, some of these approaches, understanding the state to be the main decision makers, the main um, conductors of public health research, the main initiators of public health campaigns, and the main enactors of public health policy. And so there's a kind of taken for granted understanding in mainstream bioethics that the state will, will be the main sort of actor when thinking about public health. But of course, then some feminists have come along and critiqued that and offered instead something like what we call mixed approaches, um, which they, they sort of say that there can be many different agents, which together, you know, each own a sort of share of what we might picture as a pie chart of responsibilities. So lots of different agents come and they bring their capacities as they are now, and they each take little bits of responsibility for public health. Mm -hmm. And so what we, what we try and say is that Sue Sherwin's work actually offers a different kind of critique than both of these. Um, so she offers a relational approach where not only agents themselves, but also their responsibilities can't be considered separately from the, from those of others, right? Um, so 
following her, we suggest in the paper that the question of who should be responsible for public health, as Mike said, is not really the right question Mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense to point to any single agent or group of agents as Mm -hmm. responsible outside of their relations with agents of many other types. So like a a really simple example would help to illustrate like the basic idea behind Sue's relational approach to public health ethics. So like take something simple, like trying to get a hand washing program going at a hospital or something like that. Mm -hmm. It would be strange to just single out one agent or set of agents in the hospital as responsible for, for doing that or for implementing that program. Like imagine you were just go to doctors and nurses and say, we need more hand washing. So you just need to wash your hands when it just so happens there's only like one sink on the floor or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's an example where, you know, in order to get a good hand washing campaign going, obviously the conditions within which one agent or set of agents is acting is shaped by the actions and decisions of all sorts of other agents, right? Mm-hmm. Hospital administration, but also, you know, folks who are funding the hospital, so government agencies and that sort of thing. So when we think about just something simple like getting people to wash their hands more, we're already needing to think about how the actions and decisions of some are creating the conditions for others to you know, either work towards those goals or, or, or not, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, in the paper, we turn to these two case studies and you've already mentioned the Katrina case. So mm-hmm. a, an organization called the Common Ground Collective mm-hmm. that responded to um, some of the major state failures in response to Hurricane Katrina by developing all kinds of really interesting and visionary programs that had the goal of um, you know, centering community control and long-term solutions. That's one of the case studies. And the other case study is the Black Panther Party's free clinics, um, which also offered a more democratic and participatory um, alternative to state-centered approaches. And so we try to suggest that both of these case studies bring to light some of the claims that Sherwin makes about the importance of of agents working together and conceiving of the responsibilities of agents together. Um, And that also both of these case studies show that um, there can be something other than state-centered approaches to public health, right? Both of the, both the Panthers and the Common Ground Collective in what they did um, not only met the needs of people immediately, but also challenged the the state-centeredness of approaches to public health and challenged the sense that the state was as it currently was able to meet the needs of people or able to actually promote mm-hmm. health in a, in a richer sense. Rather than actively compromising right. Right, their health. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I was wondering if there were any, were there any objections to your argument that you sort of anticipated and needed to address? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, I mean, I guess just sticking on that same, on that same theme, I mean, um, it's it's very clear, especially with with groups like the Panthers and Common Ground, that um, I mean a lot of what they were doing was avowedly sort of anti anti statist in its in its orientation, precisely because right they were so attuned to all of the ways that states not only failed communities but 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 actively compromised their health. Um, mm-hmm. And there's lots of examples you could. Um, you know, in thinking about the Panthers health organizing, for example, they um, pointed out that the, the lack of research into sickle cell anemia was a way that the state basically made sick, sickling into a kind of biological weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and, and you know, use very, very strong language to describe um, the state's health policies um, directed towards black communities in particular, but, um, but a, a poor and oppressed communities generally. I mean, the Panthers just said that this is, these are genocidal policies, basically. Mm. Um, so then, you know, to have philosophers then turn around and be and suggest that the state ought to be the primary, um, the primary organizer of public health campaigns just seems deeply, you know, deeply incompatible with a realistic view of, of how states actually function and what they do. So, it, but but at any rate, this the the um, the politics of being like cautious cautious around and and, and even anti-status. Um, led some people to suggest that maybe that's what we were advocating in this paper as well, a kind of dogmatically anti-status sort of position. And they were concerned that that would feed right into, um, you know, on ongoing neoliberal policies in the States or right libertarian sort of views that it would, um, you know, fit, fit in very well with, with the sort of anti-status zeitgeist of a lot of um, um, a lot of political movements in the states, in, in the U.S., especially on the on, on the uh, on the right. Uh, so we wanted to make it very clear that we didn't understand what the Panthers or Common Ground are, were doing as dogmatically anti-statist in that way. Um, instead, um, we try to argue that what the Panthers and Common Ground did in practice was model um, different. Um, they were acting on the basis of different conceptions of, of, of health and of what public health was about. Um, they were structured in a way that was radically different from the state. So instead of centralized sort of top-down decision-making, there were radically decentralized organizations that were very focused on evaluating and meeting local needs. Um, the people who were providing care were also often the people who were being cared for. So there wasn't this kind of separation between people who are designing, you know, a health related policy and people who are actually implementing that policy or whose needs are being met by that policy. So in, in, in a variety of different ways, they were modeling alternative ways that we could organize ourselves socially to meet each other's um, healthcare needs. Um, and sometimes that involved tactical alliances with the state. Sometimes it involved modeling behavior that the state could emulate. Mm -hmm. um, so one example of that, that um, a lot of people don't know about this, but you know, school breakfast pro or school breakfast and lunch programs in the states are largely kind of remnants of the Black Panthers, the Black Panthers free, um, free breakfast for school children programs. Cool, I didn't know are, that. Right, totally, uh, you know, all volunteer programs. Yeah. And, and the US, in, in the US, the state um, basically felt threatened by what the Panthers were doing to the extent that they sought to emulate the kind of programs they were doing. Obviously not in full, it's not like the state was going to take on uh, the Black Panthers politics or anything like that. But and at the end of the day, it's still pretty cool that there are mm -hmm. at least, you know, um, more children's needs needs being met because of what the Panthers did and how the state responded. So um, mm -hmm. so anyway, we we definitely aren't advocating a sort of dogmatically anti-statist sort of position. There are lots of ways in which agents of many different types and institutions of many different types, organizations of many different types can interact with the state in ways that help further the meeting of public health related goals. Mm -hmm.
by destroying capitalism. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That was the anti-capitalist position that we're taking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when they when these critics are saying anti-state, they I guess that what they are talking about is like very small government anti-state. So they're talking about like, is this right? They're saying they've got like the libertarian dream kind of in mind. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that was a criticism. People are worried that, you know, even though we're coming from more of a, um, a left sort of perspective that, that the kinds of things that we're advocating might feed into mm -hmm. um, sort of anti-government, anti-government, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, rhetoric and policies. That is so interesting because I, I read, I clearly read the article through my own um, ideological setup, I suppose, my own ideological uh, framing and thought of those as two very socialist, like nearing communistic endeavors rather than thinking of them as um, things right. that could feed into like a libertarian story. So right. that's really interesting actually to hear mm -hmm. that that was a kind of objection you needed to be wary of. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I, I suppose people are just that weary mm, yeah. of, of anything that might that might further erode, you know, what right. social safety net we have left in the states. So, well, yeah, that seems legit. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You mentioned Michael that you wrote this um, with Amy before the COVID nineteen pandemic right. was upon us, um, but I was definitely thinking about. Covered while I was reading your article. And I think I kind of have some ideas of, from reading your paper of what Sue Sherwin would say and sort of how we would think about public health responsibility in the pandemic. But I wondered if there was anything that you wanted to say about maybe how, how you could apply the idea of public health that you're promoting here to this scenario. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, well, on the one hand, I mean, for one thing, this has been just such a time of tremendous upheaval. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many different systems that so many of us are dependent on have been thrown into question um, or just have been ground to a halt completely. So many spheres of our life, right? From our ways of organizing work to education to food production and so much more, all of these have been you know, thrown into question or suspended. Um, but on the other hand, we've also noticed even after, you know. <laughs> And even it was though it was several years after we wrote the paper, just how much popular and scholarly discussion there is still around this this question that we've wanted to problematize, which is just who should be responsible for public health. Mm -hmm. So we, we just want to encourage at least viewing the limitations of this question. Of course, we need to hold the state accountable. I mean, in, we've experienced in the U.S. one of the most massive failures, right, in in state driven. Um, public health programs and the pandemic response. Um, you know, of, of course we need to hold the state accountable, but we can't you know, allow focusing on that question to limit the horizons of our thinking mm -hmm. and of our conversation. We can take for granted existed norms around public health and hold agents accountable in light of them, but we also need to be thinking about how these norms and importantly, the social forms into which they fit could be changed and how this moment creates opportunity to make those changes. So sorting out all the damage the state's done shouldn't be about 
just about holding politicians feet to the fire is part of what we're trying to say. It should mm -hmm. also be about thinking about what kind of systemic transformation needs to happen to prepare for other kinds of public health crises down the line, especially ones that we're likely to face um, given climate catastrophe, as Amy's already mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and any kind of quick fix policy level interventions, we think just aren't yet thinking expansively enough about the extent of reorganization that would really need to take place to reduce the neglect and, act and active harm um, of the capitalist state as we know it. Mm -hmm. And they're also coming from the top down when more expansive thinking we think can only emerge from the bottom up through efforts to reorganize relationships through other than narrowly legislative means. So we find our, our case studies really helpful in redirecting our attention here, like really going into depth into what the Panthers were doing, what Common Grad was doing. Because um, in both cases, right, instead of just accusing governments of failing to safeguard public health, these groups were trying to demonstrate through their actions uh, what's possible outside of dominant framings and organizational structures and ways of relating. And there, we've since learned that there are all kinds of examples of mutual aid networks globally that incorporate similar politics that have sprung up around, around COVID. So mm. Marina Citrin's recently uh, just released a book that gathers interviews with people she conducted in places like Rojava in Northeastern Syria, but also Turkey, a whole bunch of places in Latin America. Um, and all of this to us was just a reminder that um, something like what we're talking about is already operative. Mm all over the world and all these different localities, especially in contexts where people are facing really, um, you know, lax or problematic um, government response. And obviously the most recent wave of uprisings around the, the, the murder of George Floyd mm -hmm. is intimately linked to questions of public health and the role of the state in actively foreshortening the lives of entire populations. And we think it bears emphasizing here that you know, things like calls, calls to defund the police aren't just about rearranging the budgets of municipalities or transferring police responsibilities to social service workers, but they're about calling all of us into relation and to address the predicament of people harming each other in fundamentally different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So this is another site we think we're thinking about the state as chiefly responsible could get us into trouble. Um, and this this moment with the pandemic and all that else else that's going on, all, all the other upheavals in our lives, um, it's a, really an opportunity we think to think creatively about how we care for each other, um, rather than falling back into the usual state and policy focused conversations. So, um, so rather than any like specific policy suggestions or something like that, I think that more broadly the message of this paper in this moment is just that we need to broaden our imaginations when it comes to thinking about how we deal with mm -hmm. um, protecting and promoting public health. Well, Do you wanna add anything? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, and also appreciating that it is in moments like this. I mean, we see that the Panthers, both of our case studies are in moments of crisis, right? Um, right. Panthers were working in moments of, um, of any number of racist, racist sort of policies and crises that followed from them. And of course, in response to Katrina was a clear crisis. And so it is sort of, it is telling. I mean, people are both extremely exhausted, but also extremely creative, I think right now. And so I don't know if there's any sort of hope to be found, it seems to be in like paying attention to what people are managing to come up with um, as, as we are still very much in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Looking for the glimpses of hope at the ground level. <laughs> 
and also trying to see some of those responses as not just picking up the slack right, right mm. of failed government responses i think there's a the real you know there's a tendency even among people who are involved in such things to just see themselves as like filling the holes in in how the state responds to these things and so part of what we're doing is is just trying to remind ourselves and others that this is about more than just you know, if someone's failing to be responsible, just filling in the gaps. Um, rather, it's about really trying to reorganize how responses happen and who's involved and who's taking responsibility for them um, in ways that are more aligned with the values that are central to public health. Mm -hmm. That's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Any final message that you hope people will glean from your paper before we wrap up? I mean, I think that this has been a really nice discussion to get at a lot of the main points. Um, you know, our hope is, our hope is really to uh, encourage in, in the spirit of Sue Sherman's work for us to be able to, to think differently about responsibility for public health. Um, so yes, we're drawing attention to the dangers of focusing on the question of who should be responsible for public health. But we're, I guess, most excited about um, thinking, uh, thinking about other ways to think about responsibility that are that move beyond just taking agents and responsibilities as given, to thinking about how agents can change, um, and our responsibilities will always be interconnected. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there, I think we do hope that this can help us think about public health and in, mm -hmm. into the future. Mm -hmm. And you know, that really includes the you know the 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 people and the organizations that we're talking about in this piece. I mean both the Panthers and the common ground, they, they weren't just trying to change other folks yeah. <laughs> or to you know, make demands uh, that the state change in particular ways. Rather, they were changing themselves, uh, you know, partly through the course of changing the institutions that were at least attempting to meet healthcare needs you know, in, their, in their areas um, and building new institutions, right? Which yeah. is also a way of changing themselves. So. Um, I think that's an important message of the piece too, is just the relationship between taking responsibility for public health and being willing um, to change, mm -hmm. partly through changing the circumstances in which you live. Yeah, that's great. That's a great message. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Michael and Amy. It's been really great. Thank you. Thank Kate. you, Kate. This Thanks so much for really having great. us. Yeah, no problem. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find the paper that we've discussed linked in this episode's notes, along with a transcript. And you can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, or wherever else you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.